I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations, brought to you by Clayton Dubelier and Rice, supporting the people, ideas, and collaborations that build great businesses. We know the headlines. Inflation is the highest in 40 years, climbing 7% last year. Stock prices and corporate debt have been running incredibly high. Unemployment, meanwhile, incredibly low. While the U.S. economy grew 5.7% last year, its fastest full-year clip since 1984. The wealth gap, meanwhile, continues to spread. To fight these realities, especially inflation, the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank will soon start unwinding their two most significant policies that drove extreme amounts of available money at rates that made that money virtually free to borrow since 2008 and the Great Recession and through the COVID pandemic. They will stop the extraordinary experiment of mass buying of U.S. Treasuries known as quantitative easing and they will raise interest rates at least three, perhaps four or more times this year. The American Easy Money Party is over, and it's time to clean up any mess. So how did this party get started? Why did it go on so long, long after the first signs of rising inflation arose last year? Who made the decisions, and perhaps more centrally, why is the U.S. Central Bank, comprised of unelected governors and bank presidents, so opaque? What happened behind closed doors? Christopher Leonard has the story, and he tells it masterfully. His book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, is a clear telling of Fed policy and the key personalities behind it. People like Jerome Powell, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, and one you may never have heard of, Thomas Honig. About Leonard. He's a business reporter whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and Bloomberg Business Week. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of The Meat Racket and Coakland. Before my conversation with Chris, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Christopher Leonard. Chris, thanks for joining. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So we should start. I am so sorry you've been getting such bad press on this book. (laughs) I mean, the FT named it one of the books to read in 2022. And then the New York Times review, a fascinating page turner made from an unlikely subject, Federal Reserve Policy. Leonard, in the tradition of Michael Lewis, yeah. has taken an arcane subject rife with the risk of incomprehensibility and built a riveting narrative in which the stakes couldn't be any clearer. Um, Chris, I, I tell you what, I'll take it easy on you in this conversation so you can try to dig out of this hole that you find yourself in. <laughs> Thank you. Sound, sound fair? Yeah, sounds fair. Why do you think it's getting that kind of reaction? Oh, it's a great question. Um, well, I mean, okay, a lot of this has to do, I think, with what what drew me to this topic. I mean, I, I fell into this by accident uh, when I was reporting a different project back in 2016. And, you know, one of the great benefits and privileges of this job is I just get to meet all kinds of people from all walks of life. And I met this really brilliant guy who's a trader in financial markets, a hedge fund kind of guy. And he was really, really concerned with what he was seeing in the markets. And he spent hours walking me through what he was seeing and describing how the Federal Reserve 
had really embarked on an unprecedented and experimental path. And so, you know, what he was saying was shocking to me. And that's what got me reporting on this. And, you know, I, I guess I would humbly say that maybe the reason it's getting a little bit of reaction is that this story really hasn't been told. Of, of this critical part of what happened over the last decade in our economy. I don't feel like it's been written about deeply enough. I totally agree. It hasn't been reported on deeply enough. And the connection of the reporting with the storytelling, in my opinion, that's what I think hasn't been completed. Also, just very brief side note, you just mentioned that source 2016. I noticed in the acknowledgments, goes by the initials ZC, I think you wrote. You're not able to name the source. I just want to give you the chance to break news right now, reveal your source if you want to. <laughs> well, and listen, like I've got no illusions. Like this isn't deep throat or anything, but um, I find it very, very, very valuable to be able to have conversations with people in strict confidence. And mm. people are very comfortable talking with me when they know that they can just be anonymous and, and just be honest and tell me what's going on. And so that's why I agree to talk to somebody um, off the record anonymously. I, I don't say who they are. And I consider it, it's, it's kind of like a very discreet country club membership. There's no, yeah. no membership role. And in, in this case, I think this is really important. And maybe you've seen this too. But when we talk about the Fed and Fed policy, there are kind of these two spheres of people that talk about it. One is the sort of economist PhD set that frankly really runs the Fed. And then you got the folks who are actually operating in the wake of what the Fed's doing on Wall Street, the traders, the hedge fund, the private equity people. And you can get a really good view of what's happening when you talk to both groups. And, and again, to talk to that kind of Wall Street group, it helps to have candid, off-the-record conversations with people. So that's sort of what's driving that. Well, no surprise. You didn't want to reveal the source uh, right now. And yes, you outlined that tension between the PhDs and the Wall Street types, as well the business executives out in the field. I would almost add that's another leg to the stool. So we, we need to get into, obviously, Thomas Honig. I think it might help to start at the end. And then let's go back to the beginning and you'll explain how we got here. Um, Chris, how much trouble are we in? I mean, your book ends fairly ominously. Um, you right, Quoting you, this fragile financial system was wrecked by the pandemic. And in response, the Fed created yet more new money, amplifying the earlier distortions. The long crash of 2008 had evolved into the long crash of 2020, the bills had yet to be paid. Where are we now? Well, that's actually a great place to start. And I will break some minor news. Like the original title of this book was The Long Crash. Hmm. But, but that takes some time to explain what The Long Crash is. And it, it really gets at what this book is about, which is that the crash of 08 in many significant ways never ended. And, and what this book really focuses on is the revolution that started November 3rd, 2010, where the book opens with our, our main guy, Thomas Honig, who's making the most consequential vote as a senior member of the Federal Reserve uh, that he ever made at that time. And he was voting on an experimental and unprecedented program at the Fed called quantitative easing. And to just give you the headline, in the first hundred years of its existence, the Fed sort of steadily increased the pool of base money in our economy, which is the, the set of high-powered dollars that only the Fed can create, the monetary base. The Fed 
gradually increase the size of that pool to about $900 billion, slowly but surely. And then in a few years, between 2009-2014, the Fed prints $3.5 trillion. So that's three and a half centuries worth of money printing in a few years. And that money is not a neutral force. It had tremendous effect throughout our financial system. And the biggest effect was to push more money into riskier investments to pump up asset prices like the stock market and the bond market. Those are the kind of distortions I'm talking about that you just mentioned, that the Fed has been really sort of assiduously and patiently pumping up these asset prices for years in hopes that it would eventually create economic growth. And, and my conclusion in this book is that the, you know, the sort of back end of that deal where you get actual economic growth or productivity growth for wage earners was very, very weak and disappointing. But the asset bubbles that were created, the record-breaking stock prices, the record-breaking level of corporate debt, leveraged loans, collateralized loan obligations, that, that was a superheated market that the Fed created. And that's where we are today, is, is, is in this terrible dilemma whereby if the Fed is going to ever tighten the money supply to fight inflation, for example, these asset bubble prices will have to correct. So yeah, so it's we're not in a great position. We're in a fragile, volatile, and and worrisome position right now. And going into that vote on November third, twenty twenty, and for context, November second was the election, right? It was the second of, of November two thousand ten, and I guess if I was writing a screenplay, this is how I would have written it. It, it was poetic in the sense that on November second, it's the first midterm election of Barack Obama's presidency. The Tea Party sweeps into power. And as we know, the fiscal authorities, the democratically controlled institutions in our country, like Congress, really grinded to a halt. And so over the next decade, I think it is very fair to say, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, our democratically controlled institutions like Congress did not step into the breach and solve some of the very deep dysfunctional pathologies that led to the crash of 08. For example, the two big-to-fail banks that caused that crash are now even larger and less able to fail. That's just a tiny example. And it was in the shadow of that, the next day on November 3rd, that the Federal Reserve, which of course is insulated from democratic pressure, steps forward and says, okay, we're going to become the primary engine of economic growth. And that's what's so different about that vote that happened November 3rd, 2010, is this wasn't the Fed managing a crisis. This wasn't the Fed being the lender of last resort during a panic. This was the Fed saying, we're going to step forward to boost overall economic growth by printing money on Wall Street, something that had never really been done before. And, you know, the character you've mentioned, Thomas Honig, not coincidentally, at that time on, on the Fed's all-important policy board, the FOMC, he was the longest serving member. He'd been at the Fed for 32 years. He had seen what had happened when you let money remain too loose or easy for too long. He'd seen the inflation of the 70s, the asset crash of the dot-com bubble, the asset crash of the housing bubble, and he really tried to stop this program. And, and, and the book gets into how he tried to stop it and ultimately failed. Yeah, so one of the big judgments that one must make around um, make in terms of being a hawk or a dove around quantitative easing is around 
unemployment, of course, um, you know, was an unemployment rate of 9.6% in 2010 too high? Was that basically an emergency or not? And you just indicated, you know, one of the views, Honig's view, your view is that it, it might not be where we wanted it, but it wasn't an emergency. It wasn't an, emer- it wasn't an emergency that required that level of intervention. Um, inflation would be another area. How high was the risk and how problematic is a little inflation? And how do you define what is a little? Is it 2%? Is it 4%? Honig called it a deal with the devil is how you describe it. Yes. Um, was it? Absolutely. And we're paying the price and the price is coming due now. Um, and, and, and incidentally, when I kind of wandered into this book, as I described, I a didn't really understand quantitative easing to be totally blunt and B had a great deal of sympathy for the idea. I mean, there's a good case to be made that 9.3% unemployment is a, is an emergency. I'm, I'm sympathetic with that view, but as I, as I reported it more and kind of had the luxury of going back and reading through the actual debates that happen inside the FOMC, as you know, those debates are transcribed and then released after a five-year delay, which means they don't get read to the level they should because thousands of pages are released at a time. But when you, when you look at those debates, first of all, this key moment in, in 2010 when unemployment was high, I say it's not an emergency for a couple key reasons. First of all, everybody understood it was going to be a long, hard slog out of the hole of the financial crisis. Nobody expected that unemployment was going to be 5% by 2010. And, and secondly, the economy was starting to recover. Weak, fragile, potentially reversible? Absolutely. But as Honig was fervently pointing out in 2010, you know, the economy was starting to grow again. And the Fed needed to display a little restraint and let the economy grow and, and adjust to, to the, what the Fed was doing. And Honig wasn't arguing, let's hike interest rates up to 2 3%. He was saying, let's keep them relatively flat or maybe over time, gradually hike them to 1%, you know, very mild. But the the plan that was chosen instead, of course, was to pump $600 billion worth of new cash into the Wall Street banking system to push the banks toward, you know, lending or investing in whatever they could. And when he said it's a deal with the devil. It's fascinating to me. The argument he was making had three parts. He said, first, you're just going to enrich the very rich. Okay. We all understand that this program is only going to stoke asset prices, which will benefit the risk. Secondly, you're going to create massive new levels of risky debt. We're going to pump up asset prices to levels that'll be unsustainable and dangerous, like with the housing bubble. And third, once you start printing this money, you're not going to be able to pull out. You're going to be stuck. Yeah. Can't stop the new normal. And he was correct on all three of those points. So the pushback, the vote in 2010 was 11 to 1. I mean, that's kind of the the central thesis of the the tension that he feels personally and internally, and he brings it home with him um, and his wife sees it. And, And what a great quote you have, how stressful it is to be a lone dissenting vote in a matter of such consequence. And as a reader, you feel the human emotion that he feels in in these decisions, the weight of these decisions. And yet there is not unreasonable pushback. You mentioned some of it. You're not insensitive, you said, to a 9.6% 
unemployment. There was some stat, I think it was a stat for that, where some intervention was going to uh, reduce uh, joblessness by 750,000 jobs, which wasn't going to make a complete difference, but it certainly makes a massive difference to each one of those 750,000 people, as you point out. Some of the other pushback, I think, would be that, yes, inflation is going up now, but we did have a number of years without high inflation, that yes, that unemployment has remained low. And the pushback that I've seen, maybe the the most persuasive to me is, how do we know that Honig's counterfactual would have left us as good or better off? What are some of the arguments to the pushback to Honig and to, to what you argue for? Uh, okay, great points all. And, and, and first of all, yes, I, I do point out the book, you're right, when they debated this first round of quantitative easing, they thought it would only, in, you know, lower the unemployment rate by 0.3% or 750,000 jobs, which big picture isn't much. But, you know, I was a print reporter in St. Louis at the time, and understood vividly how important a job is, right? I mean, we had people clinging to the middle class at the time, that really matters. So, so there's a case to be made, and, and Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, made this case again and again and again. There is a risk to doing nothing, and it is better to act than than not. And and again, as I said, I was very sympathetic to that argument going into this book. Let me tell you where I really hit a, a hinge moment. Okay, when the subtitle of my book changed from "How Quantitative Easing Changed the World" to how the Fed broke the American economy. Mm. And, and, and to me, the moment was when I read the debates later in 2012, when they do the third round of quantitative easing, QE infinity, the largest round yet. At that time, the debate within the Fed was even more intense than when Honeck voted no on that first round of its kind of, of quantitative easing in, in 2010. And first of all, I got to point out then, the vote was 11 to 1, but there was intense dissent inside the, the FOMC. It was just that a lot of the people against it were not voting members. But in 2012, you see people like current Fed Chairman Jay Powell, uh, Dallas President Richard Fisher, uh, Betsy Duke, uh, Fed Governor from Wells Fargo Bank, uh, J- Jeremy Stein, a professor at Harvard, all of them making this argument that we are only going to get very small short-term gains from this policy if we do another round of quantitative easing, but we're at the same time going to be piling up long-term risks. Jay Powell spoke about this more starkly than anybody. He said, we are elevating asset prices. If we continue to do this, we are going to have a quote, large and dynamic event, which is sort of polite speak for a crash, and we're not going to be able to handle it. And you also had people like Richard Fisher pointing out categorically, this program will benefit the richest of the rich, the private equity firms, the hedge funds, the stock speculators. Those are the people who are going to benefit. People who earn wages are, are going to benefit far, far less. And so there was a knowing push into this territory to to inflate these asset bubbles on Wall Street, to build up the systemic risk for very short term, very small, short-term gains. And I think that that is unwise policy. I, I, in fact, I'll go so far as to say it was hubristic. 
that it, it was an ability that we see time and time again in different institutions to look like you're doing something in the short term and taking action when you're really sort of delaying the inevitable or piling up risks that won't eventuate until down the road. And that hubris, I mean, you're really speaking largely um, of Bernanke and yes. your the, the characterization that you give and the reporting that you've done about the politicization of the internal workings of the Fed, particularly the way that he politicked and helped maneuver the Fed governors. We all know that there are presidents of the Fed banks around the country, but they don't all sit on the FOMC committee. They don't all vote, but all seven of the Fed governors do vote. And you point out how Bernanke really would lobby and work the, the, those Fed governors to, to, to make sure he, that he had the votes. He did not want dissent. That's, a, that's exactly right. And, and it was an amazing story to me. So the, the policies we're talking about are set by the Federal Open Market Committee or the FOMC. It's the most powerful policy board within the Fed. It's run by the Fed chairman. And, and you can see, okay, so, so that group is comprised of 12 voting members. Very importantly, seven of them are always the board of governors at the Fed, who are the sort of political appointees that all work in one office in Washington, D.C. So you got seven governors who vote, and then you've got five regional bank presidents who fly in every six weeks to vote. The governors always have the majority. Hmm. And you can see it that the outliers and the dissenters always tend to be or always are the regional bank presidents who, who fly in and then one or two might vote no. If two vote no, that's a big deal. And, and it really hit home to me why this is when I interviewed that former governor, Betsy Duke, and, and she just explained to me what is kind of captured in some of the news articles. But, you know, she explained how Bernanke will lobby the governors on a one-on-one -on -one basis uh, between meetings. So they're not having an actual meeting of the governors, but it can happen one-on-one. -on -one. That's what gives the chairman so much power. And, you know, Betsy Duke told me on the record how they basically, as governors, all come to agreement on how they're going to vote before the meeting even happens. So that's why, you know, the regional bank presidents are sort of left out in the cold and you can allow one or two of them to dissent without changing anything. Mm. And then you feed into that this this culture that really prizes consensus. There's this key idea that you've got to have near unanimous votes inside the Fed, so Wall Street will have you know full confidence, full confidence in the institution. Otherwise, it'll demonstrate institutional weakness. It's exactly right, but it disguises the fact that this committee is still made up of human beings and they are making policy decisions. They are not just PhD economists solving math equations. They are, they are making policy decisions. And I'll tell you what, they, they operate on hunches. You know, I mean, Ben Bernanke in 2012, this is one way he would politic. He'd go out in public to this big symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in August and announced something. And he did this in 2012. He gives this speech saying, hey, quantitative easing has been working like a charm. I am paraphrasing the speech is public. It's in the book. But he says, QE is working great. Uh, I think we're going to do more. And then he, in, in private, in the FOMC, just weeks later, he says, you know, another round of quantitative easing will be, quote, a proverbial shot in the dark and that we don't understand what's holding the economy back. We don't understand how our tools work or what this is going to do, but we need to try it anyway. 
So, I mean, the, the, the idea that there's just this consensus all the time really disguises the fact that it's a policymaking body. And as you point out, you pointed out around that uh, Jackson Hole speech, and I think there's another one that he gives uh, later, maybe it was one that Powell gave later, that by making the announcements in advance in a public forum like that, it gives a signal to the markets that this is going to happen. It prices that activity into the activity and into the market already, at which point if X number of months later, the FOMC were to vote against it, they would be in a sense almost unofficially changing policy that was already baked into the market. That's exactly right. And they they call it the announcement effect. And that's one way Ben Bernanke boxed in the numerous critics of these policies. Chris, as we conclude, I want to go back to your summation of Honig's um, November 3rd, 2010 dissent, um, where he said, in short, Once the feds, and we've talked about this a bit, once the feds started this program, it would create so many distortions and side effects that it would almost certainly not be able to end the program without causing massive instability or even a crash. That's kind of the center of Honig's dissent and his concern. The last time the fed tried to end quantitative easing, it didn't go so well. That was you know, late 2018, early 2019. And you talk about the Powell pivot they backed off. As you know, as we're talking today, the Fed, Jerome Powell, they've signaled that quantitative easing is coming to an end again. Interest rates are set to rise. This is all being done, of course, with the hope of a soft landing, controlled unemployment, reduced consumer price inflation, and no bubble burst of asset prices. As we think about trying to do this soft landing with controlled unemployment, reduced consumer price inflation, and no bubble burst of asset prices, Chris, how likely is a smooth landing? Oh, boy. Okay. First of all, I did not come to this book as some kind of monetary hawk. Uh, Let me please make that point. I don't take joy in talking about this, and I'm not some like hike interest rates for the sake of it kind of guy. To me, as a reporter, having been looking at this, the chances that we will have a soft landing is inconceivable. Um, and, and it's really hard to lay it out so quickly, but as you talked about, they tried to quote normalize for years and it, that kind of culminated in 2018, 2019, but they are facing a tremendous problem if they ever try to raise interest rates or tighten the money supply. And this is how I would characterize it. The entire goal of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing, which were unprecedented in scale, uh, just to put this again in context Interest rates had brushed up against zero a couple times in the past. We kept them pinned at zero for seven years during the 2010s. An entire ecosystem built itself oriented around a zero rate, and that has consequences. I describe it as like squeezing toothpaste out of the back of the tube. The Fed, by intentionally drawing down yields on long-term bonds, was squeezing investment in what we call a search for yield. It was squeezing loans out anywhere they could find yield, risky corporate debt, risky leveraged loans, Tesla stock, which can grow more in a month than there's the total value of Ford and GM combined. When when the Fed does what it did with these easy money policies, it pushes money out into these risk assets. This is not controversial. They knew what they were doing. The flip side of that coin is when you raise rates and when long-term yields rise, the mathematical equation changes and investors can withdraw from those risk assets. 
I describe it as like a seesaw. And so the money will start flowing out of the risk assets and back into safe havens as the Fed raises rates and yields rise on long-term bonds. There's no way to tighten the money supply without a downward correction in asset prices. And and it, it follows logically. The Fed knew it was pumping up asset prices for years. This is in the transcripts. They knew that's how the program would work. And we could have had a soft landing if the Fed had the luxury of maybe seven years to unwind this insanely gigantic balance sheet. It, again, you sound I sound hyperbolic describing this. Um, the Fed's balance sheet was a trillion dollars in 09. It's north of $8 trillion now. And uh, $3 trillion of that came during the COVID crash, which, by the way, is when bills were coming due on the previous years of asset inflation. But <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, the Fed's hand, unfortunately for all of us, the Fed's hand is being forced and it's going to have to unwind this stuff much more quickly than it would want to. What did Thomas Honig tell you about the book? Well, he is such an interesting guy. And he's why a big part of why I wrote this book. He's got this sense of probity is how I would describe it. Um, with all of my sources, I gave them a chance to fact check the material about them in the book. And his response was to correct mistakes he found. You know, his dad leased a shop. He didn't own the shop kind of thing. I think he he likes the book because really my goal was to shine a light on on how principled I believe he is and what a mm -hmm. principled stand he made. He, I don't know, he, he keeps, a, it's been a very official, I still call him Dr. Honig, uh, but and I know that since the articles and, and the book has come out, he's gotten a lot of calls from central bankers around the world, which I think is a great thing. I think he has a lot of wisdom that he can share with people. Chris, thank you. Thank you for the conversation. And thank you for the book, which uh, um, is beyond a great read. It's a really important read. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Thank you.